Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and with me this morning to set out the week ahead, it's Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Good morning, Andrew. How was your weekend? Are you all fit and ready for another exciting week? Yes. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, the major topic of this week is the announcement imposition of personal responsibility and common sense on COVID restrictions and Sajid Javid's immovable reopening on July the 19th. Johnson today is going to announce the end of most of the remaining COVID restrictions. That includes making the wearing of face masks voluntary, making large gatherings possible again and losing the requirement for vaccinated people to isolate after contact with an infected person. This mm. is despite the highest levels of new cases since January. Scientific advisors are aghast. Professor Susan Mitchie said it was like building new variant factories. Alex, is this just Javid wanting to make a mark uh, and announce himself with a bang and declare it over? Are you missing Matt Hancock already? <laughs> I think it is in part Javid trying to make a mark because uh, he knew that the reopening was coming, basically, and so he, he can make himself really quite popular, both with the public and with a lot of Tory backbenchers, by pushing for that literally a, a handful of days earlier uh, and make himself look like a hero. And because we know that Johnson also leans that way, he's pushing at an open door. Um, but I think the, the, the fundamental problem is that there is a, a, a lack of, there is a, a sort of duality to the government's policy where it thinks that it either must make firm legislation telling everyone what to do or it butts out completely and says everyone just use your personal judgment and that's just not true and this is i think where scientists could be pressing in order to make the government understand that there is an intermediate stage which actually government a route which government takes all the time which is to give guidance this is what government should be doing instead of flip-flopping from you know introducing laws to say that you must wear your mask to saying nothing about the wearing of masks, it needs to land in the middle sensible place of saying, we will give some guidance. It's not law. You're free to follow it. You're free to not. But this is the good practice. Because I think people need that and appreciate that. People like being told what the right thing to do is, even if they choose to disregard it, depending on the personal circumstances. It is incomprehensible to me that we are removing, for instance, the, the requirement to wear, to wear face coverings on public transport, you know, on a crowded train, when you could be giving guidance, that that's still a very sensible thing to do. And actually, it's a very sensible thing to do regardless of COVID. We've seen that in the last winter, deaths from other respiratory illness have also all but disappeared. Why would this not be a thing that we want to keep, you know, in, in during flu season? Why would people not you know, want to wear a, a bloody mask on the tube if it presents if it prevents thousands of people from dying. So, yeah, I, I, like I said, I think there is a middle way, and I think the government is being weirdly resistant to taking it. Weirdly resistant to saying we're going to give you some guidance. It's not going to be legislation. We're not going to force you to do any of this, but we will tell you what constitutes best practice in each situation. I was amazed to see. 
Javid writing in the Mail on Sunday that the best way to protect the nation's health was by lifting the main COVID restrictions as cases are increasing. And the message is we have to learn to live with this. What does that actually mean? I mean, Labour will be asking this week, what are the acceptable numbers of deaths that you're, you're happy to live with? What this means is that the government is moving to its next gamble, as it were. And its next gamble is that the vaccination program will be effective enough to mean that uh, deaths from COVID never rise to a level uh, that uh, constitutes political damage and that hospitalizations for COVID never rise to a level that gives the NHS significant difficulty. That's the gamble. And it may be right. I don't know. I haven't seen the the, the detailed data under the bonnet, and I'm not an immunologist. And I can tell you that a lot of countries around the world are looking with a great deal of interest at how this experiment will pan out. But make no mistake, it is an experiment. The mask is already partly politicised. Hmm. When you've got government ministers going around the, the Sunday studio saying, well, I won't be wearing one myself, is this going to like finally definitively uh, politicise it? You know, you're either a brave f- freedom person or you're a, you're a scared sheeple with your uh, with your mask on. Because, I mean, mm. mask wearing has become so culturally embedded for a lot of people. You either do all the time or you don't all the time. And that identity is now fixed for people. Yes, and it's interesting that we have snapped back to the to the cultural norm that was in place before, which was to consider, um, you know, people from East Asia a little bit weird and a little bit peculiar and a little bit scared for wearing face coverings. Um, when, as a matter of fact, the, you know, the, the, those are cultural habits that uh, have to do with everything from a deep belief, you know, uh, uh, East Asian cultures believe in the uh, notion of polluted air, as it were, you know, chi, and everything to do with recent epidemics in East Asia, which have molded this cultural practice. So maybe we will get there, but I don't know whether it is helpful to say this is what effectively progressives do and this is what the right wing do. Uh, the Guardian science correspondent Linda Geddes uh, wrote over the weekend, to most scientists, living with the virus means doing everything you can to reduce the risks before taking the brakes off. It doesn't mean taking the brakes off and just seeing what happens. We are now, you know, most scientists will, will agree that we are now into the third wave. Do, with the employment of this kind of common sense rhetoric and personal responsibility rhetoric, does this mean when this, when this wave crests, as it will, it will be the public's fault, not the government's, for not exercising their common sense? They'll try, um, but it won't succeed because it's always the government's fault. Um, When things go wrong, people never look to themselves and say, oh, it was me that did it. And and in this particular case, because you have the, the pincer movement of the government saying something that its political enemies, as it were, do not subscribe to, it will be incredibly difficult. So the supporters of the government won't be able to point to the people who are wearing masks and who are being more careful and say it was their fault because they didn't mm. take enough personal responsibility. And they're certainly not going to point to themselves saying it was our fault because we didn't wear masks. So the only person left 
is the prime minister that will point at him and say, you didn't tell us, you didn't give us enough information. And I go back to this point that there is something between legislation and saying nothing, and that is giving guidance. When it comes to schools, that becomes a, a, a hugely important issue. The, you know, the school's system at the moment, in terms of isolations and bubbles, I mean, it's a mess. And parents will go from being dismayed by school rules to not being able to take a proper break because <laughs> holidays are very difficult at the moment. If they go to schools returning in September, and this issue isn't completely sorted, this could be the biggest electoral danger for this administration. Williamson is incompetent, but somehow unremovable. He's a former whip. Maybe he has too much dirt on everyone. I don't know. But if he's not replaced, and in order for, for, he, for the new person to have an effect on school's policy, he would need to be replaced right now, so they can't replace him a week before schools reopen. But if he's not replaced, Replace. There is every chance this will be the government's Achilles heel because it affects millions of households. I'm going to put an outside bet that when Matt Hancock has done his time on the naughty step, he's going to get education. That's my mm. outside bet. Now, but on the question okay. of, of, of schools, the bubble system where kids isolate at home if any of their class test positive, it's expected that this will be replaced by a test and release system where kids who have been in contact with infected pupils get daily tests but are still allowed to go to school. Parents have hated the bubble system we've had we've, we've had up to now. Is it the kind of thing that, you know, if, if an announcement like this is made, it, it is the thing that goes straight on the, on the front page of the mail, that this will, this will be the, uh, the star policy initiative. Your school's misery will end. Well, it, it all depends on whether it works or not, doesn't it? Because of the way transmission operates in schools, all the tests end up coming up positive, which means millions of pupils end up having to isolate at home. It won't be different to parents than the bubble system. Do you see what I mean? There are just two ways of, two ways of looking at infection that effectively has already happened. Uh, what you need to do is the way, look at ways of reducing infection in schools and managing infection in schools. So it's a difficult one. I, you know, I recognize that. I acknowledge that. It's not an easy one. But schools need clarity and they need clarity about what they will need to be doing some time ahead. So they can't be told what the new rules will be you know, in the last week of August to introduce them in the first week of September. And that's what's tended to happen. They need to be told now what the rules will be in September so that they have time to implement them and time to put systems in place. It is clearly going to be the last football determines everything week until, Yay. you know, next week. <laughs> well, you know, we love, football's great. It's but, I mean, wonderful. I'm, but what I'm, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, the, you know, Saturday was fantastic. I thought it was, Saturday was r rather a routine victory over Ukraine. It was, it was like a bit lacking in draw. It was very exciting in, in, in certain ways, but it was, it was kind of a walk in the park in others. I was thoroughly enjoying this new state of Zen like support for England where, you know, I, you don't have to sort of spend 85 minutes protecting a, a one nil lead and, you know, your guts being churned. But well, the, su the surprise to me has been how comparatively restrained 
the tabloids have been and the, the, the usual suspects who would have been covering their front pages in tin hats and so forth. I just, I mean, apart from one photo opportunity each, the party leaders have been pretty quiet as well. You, you know, Keir Starmer mm. in the pub, you know, Boris Johnson standing on a giant cross of St. George, and which was the game that he watched in his office because he uh, he obviously couldn't let us see the inside of his flat because we'd see how opulent it would be. So you know, even the politicians have been relatively restrained. Do you know what? I think it's because this team is a dangerous one, an intellectually dangerous one is what I mean. So they're such an easy team to be proud of, but such a difficult team to claim because they have made inclusiveness and diversity uh, their core value, because they consist of so many people who have been intelligent, political, and outspoken about it. Everyone from, you know, Southgate to Sterling to uh, to Rashford, of course. So hmm. I think... And Jordan Henderson. Don't yeah, forget Jordan Henderson. Henderson. Yes, of course. I think politicians are terrified and tabloids are, are terrified of the more outspoken intelligent players what happens if a tabloid goes too far or if a politician tries to claim the team and a couple of these players come out and say not in my name yeah what you should be doing is you know funding a higher pay rise for the nhs so th- that creates jeopardy for mm. politicians. And I think that's why everyone is dancing on the head of a pin. The Sun ran a pretty desperate front page today of Kane, Maguire, Stuart Pearce, for some reason, and Boris Johnson on a cross of St. George, all yelling best bar none, because the pubs are opening again. No sterling, funny that. Do you think uh, their inability to get a grip on this, do you think that the kind of possibly the Germany victory lanced that boil, that sort of, you know, resentment lingering, uh, you know, World I, War II connected to say, thing? I have to say, I thought, actually, with a couple of notable dickhead expre- exceptions, the, the uh, coverage before the Germany game and after the Germany game was also quite restrained. Um, and I think it's down to the same reason. I think this team has put the fear of God in politicians and in tabloids that if they step out of line, this is a set of players that won't be afraid to tell them they stepped out of line. And actually, the better they do in the tournament, the more credibility they have to do so in a weird way. Because if we were talking, if we were still in the group stages, a player might be hesitant to stick their head above the parapet for fear of everyone saying, you're not concentrating on your football, and that's why we didn't do well enough. But the better they do, and I mean, imagine if they go on to win this thing, which they're only two games away from potentially doing. So if they go on to win this thing, no one will be able to say, you're letting politics distract you from your day job. They will be holding an immense amount of power to say to the government, you need to do X in terms of policy, and to say to the tabloids, the way you've you've ex- excluded black players from this triumph has been shameful. There you go. Come on, you woke Marxists. Yes. <laughs> you're you're going to get your means of production expropriated. <laughs> so one little thing for you as well, Alex. Clubs are reopening. Hooray. Yes. Hooray. Yeah, we shall meet back at Ducky. Yes, it's going to be wonderful. Well, as a long-time raver, I'm happy to wear a mask in a club. Yeah, There's no too. problem with that. But it's got some Vicks Vapor rub inside it.
Me too. Also, you know, as an old fogey, um, I, I quite like sort of having a dance and then stepping outside for a mm. bit. Uh, it, it, it tends to be the pattern of how I club anyway. So I think, you know, places with little outside spaces will be really good because it means you, you don't have to be in that enclosed space the whole time. A handful of more things to look out for in the course of this week. Labour is still basking in the glow of Batley and Spen. Yeah, Kim battling Ledbe- and spinning. Battling and spinning. Kim Ledbetter, or Ledbeater, we can never decide. She's going to make her Commons arrival on Tuesday. She's surely going to be cre- dr- greeted like a queen. The party is, is still a little bit short of ideas. What did you make of the uh, the Buy British initiative from Starmer over the weekend to oblige councils and public bodies to give preference to UK-made goods and services? It's, it's a bit here's a Brexit benefit, isn't it? A little bit. Uh, I mean, I'm always conscious of uh, initiatives which imply that, you know, sticking a British flag on something or any kind of flag on something makes it a better thing. But having said that, obviously, uh, the government of a particular country should be supporting its own industry first and foremost. So, I, you know, I have no issue with saying procurement rules should prioritise British companies because there are genuine financial uh, considerations that go into that. Do you you see what I mean? Mm. Because it's not just about the price that you pay for X thing that you're procuring, but if you pay slightly higher price to a British company, you're also creating jobs in your community. You're taking VAT and tax from the money people spend. And and so, you know, it becomes a sort of virtuous um, circle. So I, I don't think... I don't think it's a good thing and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think Labour are trying to find their feet now. Um, uh, but, you know, three polls out over the weekend, Servation cuts the the gap uh, from nine points to seven points, Redfield 11 to seven points, Savannah from 14 to nine points. As you know, I'm very conscious of um, the <laughs> erroneous nature of polls, but what I do trust is the movement of tracking polls. And so while I attach no particular stock to the absolute number, tracking polls all moving in the same direction over a a short period usually indicate that that movement is happening quite reliably. Also, the infamous Police Crime Sentencing and Court Bill Mm. is coming in for third reading this week, and it's amendments time. Harriet Harman is going to try to amend for an express statutory right to protest, and also other provisions, including on harassment, on curb crawling. There are other amendments like buffer zones around abortion clinics. Obviously, amendments can often be symbolic there, and it's particularly with majority like this, it's it's unlikely to see them getting straight in. Third readings aren't box office, but is it a good way to to highlight the uh, the failings and the holes in the bill? It is a good way of getting issues in the press and the public domain. So, you know, an amendment that fails today becomes an amendment that succeeds in two years' time because you've prepared the ground, uh, because you have talked about this and because you've created a weight of public opinion that is behind it. Um, On this occasion, I think some of these amendments are going to be interesting because I think there are 
segments of uh, uh, Johnson's backbenches which are unhappy about the Hancock affair, which are unhappy about the pace of unlocking, which are unhappy about, you know, various provisions, that he's not going fast enough, about the travel industry. And so there is some unhappiness which might be channeled into specific issues. And so I could see one of all of those uh, amendments not succeeding, but having to be adopted by the government um, because they feel that there's enough unrest in their backbenches. But it's going to be it's going to be interesting. One more Labour thing: the Unite election is on this week. Unite the Union. Gerard Coyne, moderate, against Steve Turner and Sharon Graham, both two candidates from the left. How big a deal? How much of a turning point for Labour do you think? I mean, it's a big deal. Um, I'm not sure that you particularly want uh, uh, the big union and a big funder of Labour to be on entirely the same page as the leader. I thought it was quite dysfunctional when it happened under Corbyn, for instance. I would have much preferred a slightly more centrist person at Unite while Corbyn was in the lead. And for that reason, I think I would have some sympathy with a leftist candidate while Starmer uh, is leading the party, because I think that tension is healthy. I think, you know, a, a union that represents many, many thousands of working people should be pulling labor in a particular direction. And so I'm not sure it is as you know, cataclysmic, as people suggest, if the left-wing candidate gets re-elected to lead Unite. I think it will be a resetting of the relationship anyway because it will be different personnel and because I think Len McCluskey had become quite hubristic and quite entitled to pick up the phone and dictate to uh, the Labour leader what the policy should be. So I think there will be a reset anyway. But it will be a very interesting one to watch. Howard Beckett has withdrawn, and so that leaves the two candidates from the left. Uh, and because Unite have a sort of first-past-the-post system, that might mean coin comes through the middle. If coin does get in, it will make the next Labour conference a very interesting one because, of course, Unite control a big block of votes. Um, and it might encourage people to go for quite radical reforms of the rules in the upcoming uh, conference. Finally, talking about cataclysms, the actual cataclysm <laughs> of the, the Canada Pacific Northwest heat wave, the horrific scenes of disaster movie proportions. Mm. Um, obviously, this is not the kind of thing that slots well into a daily events news cycle because it is a vast and uh, continuing problem. But Alex, you have you have thoughts on this? Well, I have a very good friend that lives in Seattle and because they have a swimming pool, um, they've basically been running an open household um, to all friends and family for the last 10 days because they see it as sort of public service because no one can stand it. So everyone is around their gaff next to the pool. It is becoming more and more difficult, I think, to deny this thing, isn't it? Last week, um, I have one sister that lives in Trondheim, half halfway up the Norwegian coast, and the other one is in Mykonos, you know, in, in southern Greece. At one point last week, you know, the sister in Norway w- was having higher temperature than, than the sister in Greece, and not by a bit. 
you know, but by five, six degrees, which is something that shouldn't really happen, should it? And it happens with alarming regularity nowadays. So I think it's becoming very difficult for people to deny that there is a climate emergency, to deny that they must take personal responsibility and begin to do something to address it when it's actually happening to them, to people they love. Alex, thank you for joining me to start your week. It's been my pleasure. Remember, listeners, there's a new daily every Monday to Thursday, and now the weekend as well. There's a very good one about climate change that came out yesterday, Sunday, so have a listen to that. Also, don't forget our live show, The Bunker vs. Oh God, What Now?, on Tuesday, the 10th of August, at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. All fully COVID compliant. I think there'll be a lot of masks in the audience. Tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com, and you can get 10% off when you back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily, Start Your Week, was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.